Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. I'm Cardiff Garcia. This week, producer Amy Keene, co-host Shannon Bond, and I are taking a brief pause to do a little podcast spring cleaning, but we are going to replay one of our favorite episodes from a while back, and I also want to give you a preview of what's to come in the weeks ahead. So next week's show will be a long and really fascinating conversation I just had with economist Anne Case about her monumentally important trilogy of papers, along with her co-author Angus Deaton, about mortality in the U.S., And then after that, historian Jeremy Edelman will talk to us about the amazing and adventurous life and ideas of Alberto Hirschman, the subject of Edelman's magisterial biography a few years ago. Those will be followed in short order by chats with Jason Furman, the former chair of Obama's Council of Economic Advisors, Tyler Cowen, the economist and blogger, and Alice Rivlin, an economist who really has seen it all in both academia and policymaking. But today, we're replaying a conversation that my colleague Matt Klein had with Jim Chanos, the hedgie known for his success as a short seller. This is one of my favorite alpha chats, and it also happened about a year ago, so a lot of our newer listeners might have missed it. The episode starts with Matt and me discussing Jim's career for a few minutes before Matt and Jim start their chat. Here it is. Matt, how are you? Good, how are you? Okay, this is very exciting. Uh, why don't you start by telling our listeners who you spoke to? I spoke to a guy named Jim Chanos. He's the founder of Kinecos Associates and probably the most famous fundamental short seller uh, operating today. Um, most probably well known for having bet against Enron and calling it correctly as a fraud back in 99 before it went bust, subsequently having made some very correct calls on companies um, such as Valiant, more recently home builders you know, in the run-up to the financial crisis. And a whole lot of other interesting smaller companies you may not have heard of. You know, short selling is one of those topics uh, where every once in a while I think of how little I know about it. Right? I mean, I understand the basic mechanics. You borrow a stock, hoping that it'll go down or betting that it'll go down, and then later on you give it back to whoever you borrowed it from, and you profit on the decline in the stock. There's actually so much about it that's a little bit murky. I think even to people who are steeped in other parts of finance, uh, how do they hedge? how much of your portfolio you should allocate to it, things like that. Did you cover that? And what are some other topics uh, that you got into with Jim? Yeah, we definitely talked about the mechanics or what he called the the back office section. But I think it's it's definitely uh, interesting stuff that, you know, it often gets sort of glossed over when people ask about, you know, what do these people do? And, it, and it's relevant and the implications for investors who invest in these strategies. Uh, we also talked about his research process and, and how the team works and comes up with ideas uh, it's pretty amazing the the range of industry sectors and geographies that they cover and the way you know there's a big world out there a lot of potentially bad companies to find so um, you know how they cover that we looked a bit at uh, some particularly notable past successes some some mistakes uh, that he's made that you know and um, and some opportunities that he that he missed out on purpose for various reasons 
fascinating. Uh, well, anyways, I think our listeners are going to really like this. It's a big name in this space, uh, and he has lots of interesting things to say. Here it is, Matt interviewing Jim Chanos. Well, thanks for coming. I want to start with how you got into the business that you are in, which is you bet against companies. That's within finance. It's an incredibly niche business. My colleague Dan McCrum wrote about last summer that within the hedge fund research database, about 9,000 funds, there are only 17 that are short biased. Two of those are yours. Uh, how did you find yourself in this uh, particular slice of the finance industry? Well, thanks for having me, Matt. Um, you know, it was inadvertent. Uh, I started out uh, first very briefly in investment banking and then uh, research, uh, first for a small brokerage firm and then for, for a larger one. And the first idea I wrote about in 1982 as a sell side analyst turned out to be a, a massive fraud. And after that idea sort of uh, ran its course, the hedge fund clients of the small brokerage firm I worked for was sort of pestered my bosses to, to ask what else I didn't like. And uh, so for a few years on the sell side, I thought I could carve out a, a niche looking for fundamentally overvalued institutional ideas. But it's a tough, if you think it's tough to do it in a hedge fund form, it's even tougher to do it on the sell side, just for all the biases you might imagine. And so in 1985, when I found myself on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, on this article about an evil cabal of hedge fund managers and short sellers were dragging all these poor companies down. Um, it was uh, it was sort of funny of the 10 companies mentioned, I think nine went bankrupt and or were, were uh, indicted for fraud or their CEOs were, uh, were investigated for fraud. And my employers at the time suggested I might want to look for work elsewhere when my contract was up. So luckily for me, I had some people interested in backing me. And so Kinecos Associates was started in October of 85. So we just had our 30th anniversary. Congratulations. Thanks. One of the, the things that seems particularly challenging about short selling, and, mm -hmm. and you, you mentioned this just now, is that there's a lot of institutional biases right. against short selling. That the whole, entire sell side industry, much of the sort of financial media, a lot of politicians, they think if, if things are going up, right. that it's good. You know, your 401k is richer. There's a lot of psychological pressure. You know, you don't want to be against the crowd. Right. How do you, as an investor, deal with that and, and, and be able to, on the one hand, stick with the position when you think it's correct right. and also not be so kind of bullheaded about it that, sure. you know, you, you ignore the conventional wisdom when it's actually right? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, first of all, to, to get to your, your, the preface of your question, you know, up is good and, and down is bad. And, and of course, well, on the surface, that seems right. We sort of always forget that, that you know, having Grandma Klein pay too much for stocks can be bad. Uh, that that short sellers are an important check on the marketplace, and in fact, Bill Sharp in his uh, Nobel Prize acceptance speech pointed out that that frictionless short selling is essential for the efficient market hypothesis and the capital asset pricing model. Um, and so, it, it's it is an essential part of the marketplace, but the trickier part, of course, is is doing it right and doing it well, and uh, that is much much tougher. And you know, generally speaking, we assume that securities prices over time, in the United States anyway, will, will generally drift up. Um, that's the safe bet. But that's not what you get paid for in my business. And so what I've always said in terms of the business proposition of a fundamental short seller, and it's paradoxical, but here we go, 
being short in a, in a, with a good short seller who's producing nominally minor positive returns in a bull market enables you to be more long. And that's really the essence of what we're doing. So for example, if I make you a few percent a year being short, in effect, I'm an insurance policy. I'm protecting your downside and I'm paying you a small amount in dividends. But think about it. You could then go twice long the market, be short my portfolio, and have 2x the market plus a few percent minus your cost of the additional carry. Um, and that's the proposition. And that's why uh, short selling alpha is so prized in the marketplace when you can find it because it enables you to be more long. And, and when I tell people that, they sort of scratch their head. You know, here you have a noted bear saying that my proposition to you is I'm going to let you be more long. Is that something that in general your clients, I mean, they, they invest in you being aware that that's the value of a short portfolio and they overinvest, effectively overinvest in their other equities? Exactly. We really won't accept and don't want to accept any money we know is consciously coming to us because they think the market's going down. You can get that protection elsewhere. They're investing with us because we're a construct for their portfolio and we're enabling to hedge out either their excess long exposure or to let them be long more long than they otherwise would be comfortable in being. And that's really what it is at the end of the day. As I keep saying to people, I'm in the insurance business. So how do you manage your own wealth? I mean, it seems like based on this logic, you would not be putting all of your own money in, in Kinecos directly, right? Well, not in our short only. I mean, and, and, and so for myself and my partners and our employees, we've encouraged them to be in one of our hedged vehicles, which we have a couple. And, and that just makes more sense personally. So, and, and our clients understand that. Can you speak more on these differences? I mean, you, there there are multiple. I believe there are three distinct funds that you operate. What the, what sort of the differences are, and how clients view the? Yeah, yeah. I have to be a little careful because I can't I, I can't make this a testimonial, as you know. Sure. But just broadly speaking, um, the the three pools are basically our our oldest, our, our short only book of business going back to eighty five. Um, we then have a long short business, a more traditional, where we take our best ideas and look for ways to hedge them. And that's in effect the market neutral, give or take. And then we have sort of the most controversial thing we, we rolled out to outside investors last year, but we've been running for the last 16 years, um, actually closer to 20 years, is is uh, our uh, 190. So our 190-90, uh, meaning we're about 100% net long, but we're 190 long mm -hmm. and then 90% are shorts to basically produce a 100% a net long fund. And uh, when, when that came out, I think, in the New York Times, people said that's the absolute top, top of the market. Um, yeah, and maybe it will be. Who knows? Speaking of of, of tops and, and, and hedging and, and these balancing, I mean, I, I'm curious how you think about risk management. It, it, risk management is very difficult for investing in general. It seems like it's, at least in the popular perception, even more difficult for someone that is going to be short focused. Right. You know, the stereotype is if you put your money in a company hoping it's going to go up, the worst that happens is you lose all the money you put in. Mm -hmm. If you put your money betting it's going to go down, it could go up, you know, theoretically to infinity. Right. I mean, how, how do you think about these and, and, and balance and manage risk? Yeah. So, uh, well, I always first of all start by saying I've seen far more stocks go to zero than infinity. Um, and, and, and that comment, uh, underscores a real problem from a behavioral finance point of view in the way people think about the short side. They tend to think of it far more discreetly than they do their portfolio on the long side. And short selling is a portfolio. So 
for us globally, we have 80 names. Domestically, we have 50 names. Um, typically, no one position will ever be more than 3 or 4% of the portfolio. So right then and there, unless you're just going to put your positions on fall asleep, I mean, you have some, some theoretical ability to prevent the runaway portfolio. Um, another check, of course, is that if you go into one of our partnerships, you can only lose what you put in. You're a limited partner. People kind of forget that. Um, I have the unlimited liability as the general partner. More practically on a day-to-day basis, however, the, the, in terms of managing a portfolio, the short side has is, is got a lot of asymmetries. And one of the asymmetries, of course, is that as your position goes for you, it becomes smaller. It's exactly the opposite on the long side. On the long side, the more it works your way, the bigger it becomes. I might argue that's, a, that's a, not a bad thing, that, that, that your risks increase the more something works for you and, and vice versa. Of course, limited by the zero bound. One other thing I would point out to you is that if you gave me $100 and, uh, and I just had a one stock portfolio on the short side, uh, you wouldn't have to give me any more money. And I could, uh, if I shorted Enron at 100 and continued to short it on the way down, uh, you could make more than your 100%. And I'll let you think that through as long as you're willing to, to, to add to the position. Right. Because the profits go your way, you then more go back to 100% right. short, of course. So you can make more than a, you can then make more than 100% on the short position by only putting up $100. In terms of you know, risk management techniques, I mean, you mentioned diversification is obviously mm-hmm. kind of the main tool that any investor's arsenal. How do you think also about situations where you are conceptually correct but just early. I mean, it seems like it happens a lot, especially in some of the companies that, that you've targeted in the past successfully mm-hmm. that they, they – it's hard to time the entry point. Yep. And you know, how, how is that something that, that you as an investor deal with? Yeah, there are two reasons why it seems like you tend to be early on the short side. Number one, a lot of things that, that fundamental short sellers like us look for um, tend to show up well before they hit the earnings uh, report or the earnings uh, – the, the P&L. Um, so it might be uh, problems in the balance sheet or the footnotes that you see or, or something, some other problem that you see well before management fesses up to it in, in its earnings releases. Uh, number two, you have to borrow the shares. And, and sometimes when it becomes apparent that something may be about to happen, you could be, your timing could be much better, but you might not be able to affect the trade. So that is an issue in, in some some cases, or that the rebate, the, the amount of interest you earn on the sale process might be negative and, and might, in fact, be a governor on, uh, on your ability to, to profit from the trade. So, you know, by the time it came, became apparent that, that Sears Holding, for example, to use an example, was a basket case, the negative rebates were 40, 50, 60 percent. And so it really wasn't, uh, it really wasn't economic for you to reflect that. In other words, the stock would have had to fall by at least 60% for you to even. break even. Yeah. Yeah. So so again, these there's lots of asymmetries that that a short seller has to deal with. So it tends to make you early. Um and again, I don't think I've ever it's very rare that that we've ever timed anything, you know, almost perfectly. Our average holding period tends to be about a year. When you think about a trade that was a success. I mean, how do you? Not all the companies you go after necessarily are going to be uh, driven into bankruptcy and the CEOs arrested for fraud. I mean, how do you know when it's time to either declare victory and move on, or alternatively to say maybe we made a mistake on where the stock is going and, and get out? Well, in both those instances, um, I, I would say that uh, 
it's it's a nice problem to have, Matt. But uh, um, it really depends also on the environment. So so two sort of guiding principles there. A stock can be a better short even though it's gone down. can be a better long even though it's gone up if you have new information. And certainly that was the case in, in lots of situations in our, in our past, like, like the Enrons of the world. On the other hand, another uh, contributing factor for your decision making is what else is out there. You know, are you in an environment where there's lots of great ideas and you're willing to take some money off the table on an idea that's that's working even though you might think it has further downside because there's an awful lot of things out there that, that seem even crazier. So it, it does depend. Again, it's a portfolio con- uh, approach just like any money management decision and you're looking at competing ideas for your capital. Um, but it, it really, since we're pure fundamental investors, we really, it depends on the news flow and what we now know that we didn't know, say, weeks or months prior to that. And if we decide that, that we actually know a lot more, we've gotten a, a much better glimpse of what's really going on in these companies, you know, stock down 20, 30, 40% might still be an opportunity. So I want to take a moment to actually sort of look at a specific example that I think might be relevant to this this question, which is Herbalife, which is a company that certainly got a lot of attention. I mean, it sort of seems like it's actually dropped out of the news recently. But you know, as, as some people, you know, Bill Ackman saying it was it was a multi, you know, it was a complete scam. Other people saying it was good and buying it. You uh, you were short at it at one point, and then I, I I saw you you said you exited the short after he presented his presentation. So the price was no longer compelling in terms of what the upside return would be for you. Can you walk through a little bit how you did that calculation and came to that decision? Well, so uh, we were short Herbalife, um, and when Bill uh, put his uh, his first report out, um, the stock was down almost 50% in you know, a matter of, of days. And at that point, we just determined the risk-reward had changed dramatically, uh, that unless we felt this, the, the FTC or someone else was going to immediately move to, to crimp their business, that two other multi-level marketing ideas that we were short also, which didn't move as much, they were down a little bit, um, actually were much better use of our capital at that point. So that's a good example of what we were just talking about a few minutes ago, where we covered our, our herbal life, you know, not knowing Bill was going to say anything, just but suddenly the market was was marking that down 50%, and we reallocated that capital into two other ideas. And uh, one which worked really well, and one which which didn't work at all. Um, but it, it just was was a, a, a real-time good example of the, of the idea. The market gave us an opportunity to re, uh, reallocate that capital into, uh, into things that we thought were even more expensive. And had the FTC moved or the government moved quickly to, to move against Herbalife, we think these other stocks would have dropped just as much because they were probably just as egregious. You mentioned that you, you have about 80 positions globally at a time. Uh, 50 in the U.S., I guess 30 international. Is that something that you have as like a pretty hard target or, I mean, how much flexibility? I mean, we, we have a lot of flexibility. I mean, it, it globally, it, right now it's 80. We've gotten a little more concentrated as the market's gone up because um, some ideas we just love have gotten bigger and we like them. Um, globally, it can be 80 to 100, um, domestically 40 to 60. Now, since our domestic portfolio is 30 years old, that's been a pretty accurate number. It's a lot of it's it's due to the companies I think I can follow. We have a kind of a top-heavy research model as well and that all the partners really do 
a lot of the work themselves on the ideas as well as the investment analysts. And I just think that, that those are numbers which I feel I can comfortably keep an eye on and know pretty well along with the help of, of my very able staff. So I think that, that um, I think it would be hard to do more than that. I think this is a natural transition to ask just generally how, how do you come up with ideas? It's, it, I mean, if we think about a lot of people who have opinions about companies doing well or badly, whether it's on the sell side or the buy side, they generally specialize in a, an industry sector or geography. But if, if we go back and look through your track record, it seems like it's gone through all sorts of countries, all sorts of industry sectors, different reasons. It's not just fraud. Sometimes it's companies just in dying business models or it's just a fad that's overpriced. You know, what what is the method here? How do you, how do you well, we, source ideas? We try not to limit ourselves. It's a big world out there, and you, you know, at any given time, certain industries are going to be in and out of favor, and regions are going to be in and out of favor. And so, by restricting yourself, I, I think you're restricting yourself. I think I think it's it since we're being asked to really for for our clients hedge off broad equity exposures. I think it behooves us to 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 look pretty pretty widely. Now, we weren't looking abroad until uh, 2005 when we uh, opened up our global fund and really we wanted to see whether the research process could work and the shorting process could work because prior to that, for the size we were, there were two limiting factors. Number one was the disclosure regime for a lot of markets was terrible. Companies did not really tell you a whole lot that you might think would. And then secondly, the, the ability to borrow the shares was also problematic. The growth in hedge funds has, has helped that, paradoxically. Uh, and, and disclosure's gotten a lot better due to IFRS and other reasons. So uh, we found that as we were constructing and doing research on a global basis, that, that our approach, um, which was pretty, you know, pretty rigorous security analysis, worked just fine. In fact, arguably better. Because what we then found out, one of the good asymmetries was, was that generally the sell side analyst community uh, abroad was even less skeptical than ours. And that's saying something. You know, they apprised management access more than anything. And so you almost never saw negative comments or negative commentary about companies abroad, where occasionally you see it in the States. Um, so all those things sort of, I think, set up for the idea that we could take what we had been doing for, at that point, 20 years and port it over, which we've done for the last 10 years on the global side. But again, I, I think that uh, we look far afield um, and and sort of wherever it'll take us. In fact, we came across the whole idea of the Chinese credit bubble from doing work just on a specific individual sector, the miners in, in 09. And that's a good example of just sort of looking at, at an industry on a micro basis and having it lead us down a, a very interesting winding road. Um, so we don't want to restrict ourselves. Some of our best shorts right now are in uh, pretty esoteric markets. Why don't you walk us through how that China trade developed? I mean, I, I read an article. It was, it was a profile of you from, from December of 2008 saying that you'd, you'd seen that electricity consumption in China was down and GDP growth was still going at like 8%. You thought they're, they're making up the numbers. This sounds like something, you know, set off a, you know, sense of recognition of, of companies in the past that you've, you've gone up against. You know, how do you translate that insight into the, com the country as a whole as having a debt problem and then going from there 
into, well, these are the actual specific companies we're going to bet against and then here's how I put on the trades. Can you walk us through all the steps? Yeah, th- that commentary in 08 was just sort of a, a, a preview um, and we weren't short China at that point, but I was beginning like a lot of people just to sort of try to understand you know, this economic model over there and just how dynamic it was. And it wasn't till 09, the fall of 09, where we really you know, began to to try to understand. And, and as I mentioned, we were looking at the, the global mining companies and trying to figure out why it was they were profitable in the teeth of the recession. And it became very apparent to us very quickly. I mean, we knew it was because of China, of course. And I'm talking about companies like BHP Billiton and Rio Tinto, Vale. But we didn't have a sense as to magnitude until um, the, the story is, is, is internally now is, is, is sort of one of our great stories. A research, a real estate analyst was addressing the partners, and he said currently there's 5.6 billion square meters of high-rises in, in China un, under construction and half residential, half uh, office space. And I thought for a second, I said, oh, no, 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 you, you've gotten the, the American rest of the world metrics wrong. You must mean 5.6 billion square feet because 5.6 billion square meters is you know, roughly 60 billion square feet. And uh, my analyst looked at me sort of, you know, terrified. He's a young analyst in time. He said, I know, I, I double-checked. It's 5.6 billion square meters. I thought for a second, I said, well, if half of that's office space, that's roughly 30 billion square feet of office space. And that's a five foot by five foot office cubicle for every man, woman, child in China. And that's when sort of we all looked at each other and our jaws dropped, realized, wow, this is this is something, this is a once in a lifetime kind of thing where this whole country is in effect building itself out in a very short period of time. Um, so then we looked at the, the capital spending of these miners that were all, and we went back and looked at a time series of those that were around from 1990 on. And, and and once again, it was sort of a, just one of these hit, your, uh, hit your, your head kind of moments. So from 1990 to 01, the total CapEx for these companies went from $6 billion a year total to $14 billion a year in, in 01. It's a pretty good growth rate. And half of that is about the cost of the digging the hole, and half of that is you know, the Caterpillar and Komatsu tractors and bulldozers, earth movers. Um, from 01 to ultimately the peak in 2012, um, it went from $14 billion a year to $122 billion a year. So it went from an arithmetic function in the 90s, which is a pretty good growth decade for the, for the globe, to this insane geometric function when China signed the WTO in 01. And, and again, just another sort of check and this was back in, in almost 2010, so we hadn't even hit the peak yet, of just how important this giant building boom, this, this construction site called China, was not only for China and for its economic model, but for Australia and Indonesia and sub-Saharan Africa and Brazil and Canada, anybody that was, was selling things into this. And that's kind of when we realized it's not going to be just China. It's going to be lots of different things and and that this is going to play out over a period of time, which it has. And it's not over. I mean, this story is far from 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 over, whether it's China itself or the or the hard commodity com- companies or the countries. I mean, this is still this is going to be the driver 
Um, I like to joke there's two givens in the investment world for the last handful of years. The central banks have your back and China's going to stimulate. So the central banks have the investors back and China has the global economies back. Um, China will be the engine of global growth and central banks will make sure nothing goes wrong in the financial markets. Those are two very, very big pillars and they had better hold up because everybody believes them. Just to clarify, you came up with this inside stemming from real estate and the miners and, and then – Yeah, the, the, and the magnitude, more, more sure. or less the magnitude. Having gone through the commercial real estate bubble in the late 80s here, sure. uh, I missed the Japanese one, which uh, to, to, to my you know, eternal detriment. Uh, the residential uh, real estate uh, bubble here in the U.S. in the mid-millennium. And so I mean, the numbers were striking. We began to look at, at the size of the banking system relative to the economy, all sort of traditional metrics you would look at. And, and, and anything you looked at was just screaming at you a credit bubble. And, and one, of the, one of the definitions or one of the sort of buckets we've found an awful lot of our ideas have ended in in the past has been booms that go bust. And we define that pretty tightly as being um, credit-driven asset inflation, where the assets being purchased with borrowed money do not generate enough cash to service the debt incurred. So it really is, is, is a leveraged bubble. And um, China fit that description you know, across the board in almost any industry you want to look at. And, and that's why it was so exciting to us, because here you have an economic model that I believe is unsound, based on 50% investment, and you have a banking system that is, in my view, insolvent, based on any kind of rational look at, at the value of the debts, and you have a Politburo and poli group of policymakers who, while they know this, can't let up on the gas pedal for, for basically fear of stalling out or losing control of the car, and so they're just going faster and faster around the track. And to me, that sounds like just an absolute prescription for disaster. You have this view in your head. You were relatively early. And it's now becoming somewhat more consensus, although I don't think to the extent that you're articulating it. How do you then decide what actual trades to put on, especially given the limits that China has on foreigners actually betting on their own companies? Yeah. Um, so the interesting thing is we've never been short any shares inside China, a share market. Um, my friend Mark Cohotis has a wonderful term. It's it's like pigs on LSD, and 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 it, just because there's no correlation to the economy, and you know who knows right. which way the Chinese retail investor is going to, you know, what side of the bed they're going to wake up on any given week, month, or year. But you do have the H share market, which is a much more institutional market where the big the big uh, institution the big institutional sized companies trade. And then you have all these sort of derivatives, which were really, at the end of the day, the best way to be short, whether it's Macau, whether it was the Australian iron ore industries, whether it's been container shipping, you know, a variety of different situations as, as this is sort of washed through the global economy and, and continues to do so. So we have found that those ideas, companies tied to China or companies that sell into China have been a much better way to play this and actually trying to, to short A shares in, in uh, China itself. So we continue to, to pursue that strategy. And to be clear, you only focus on stocks of companies. You wouldn't look at things like exchange rates or commodity prices in this case. No, we're not betting. On, we have the right to do so, particularly in our, in our hedge fund, but we haven't put the currency trade on or anything like that. Or like iron Oh, just going long the like long – well, we're, we're long oil. Right now we're long oil in our hedge fund and, and short selective 
energy stocks. So, so we do do that from time to time. You know, speaking of longs, I'm curious, you know, how does that process work? Is that, is that something that, that you find to be sort of a different discipline than, than shorts? I mean, there are, there's certainly a lot more long investors or, you know, fundamental long investors and fundamental shorts. How, How do you, how do you go about that process? So, I mean, most most hedge fund investors and, and, and a lot of other investors basically will, will start by constructing a long portfolio that they like and then often will hedge it passively. For most of our longs are done exactly the opposite way. So we start with the short portfolio. That's what we do. And if we can find a, in, in our hedge fund, for example, we can find a great way to hedge out the systematic market risk of, of an idea, we'll do that. Maybe a Paris trade or, or a, a, a industry ETF. Otherwise, it's it's basically reasonably passive in terms of indices, whatever. You know, we know what our strength is. It, it's it's the short side. It's awfully hard to beat the market, and it's and it's even harder to beat the market on the long side. So, and, and everybody's trying to do that. And so, we have our little market niche of just a handful of us, sort of doing this full time. But on the short side, I'm happy to to passively hedge most of that risk. And try to extract the alpha from the short side, not the long side. Getting back into the sort of the general sense of where ideas come from, are there kinds of patterns that you look for? I mean, what are the sorts of things, whether it's the capital structure of a company or management, that sort of set off alarm bells? Well, as I mentioned, we, we've tended not that we look to fill buckets, but we've tended down through the years to 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 see that a lot of our ideas fit certain broad themes. Uh, and one I mentioned is the, is the booms that go bust where you just get these credit-driven asset manias and, and the, the assets can't service the debt. Usually that ends in tears. Um, another one is, is technological obsolescence. And, and the Internet's been a great wealth creator, but um, it has destroyed lots of business plans and lots of moats, and we keep our eye out. And, and that's an ongoing for us, an ongoing source of ideas. I mean, it just, it's amazing how the analog to digital revolution just continues to find, you know, new businesses to, to decimate. And, and we're mindful of that. It, it's the, you know, Schumpeterian uh, view of capitalism. Third one would be uh, uh, a fun one is, is consumer fads. I think you mentioned it earlier. And, and there you, you see Wall Street over and over and over again just extrapolating out single product companies you know, with hockey stick growth, um, whether it's George Foreman grills or Nordic tracks or Cabbage Patch dolls or Fitbits or whatever it might be, you know, this time it's different. Everybody's going to have five, and it rarely is. Um, another area would be uh, growth by acquisition. Um, we're just drawn like moths to the flame, I guess, to companies uh, in, in sort of crummy businesses that uh, decide to tell the street that they're actually growth companies by buying the growth. And typically this this leads to uh, uh, the temptation of playing acquisition uh, accounting games in terms of uh, valuing the assets or, and or spring loading by, by having the uh, target companies um, hold off business in the, in the interim period between the announcement of the deal and the closing of the deal so they look better once you fold them in. And so we're just we love those kinds of stories. Uh, typically, the the roll ups, or as they've been deemed, the platform companies. And then finally, just pure outright accounting stories, where we just find a company that's just completely playing uh, legal or illegal accounting games, and and to to obscure the reality of what's going on. And uh, and then finally, uh, anytime we can sell 
a dollar for two dollars because the market gives us some silly trade. We'll do that, you know, till the cows come home. One of the things you mentioned earlier is <clears throat> the importance of of your colleagues, your partners, and and your staff for generating ideas and and doing research and managing risk. Can you kind of give some more sense of, you know, what is it everyone and does, and and you know how the you know you pick them and what the value is to the organization as a whole. Yeah, our model's a little bit different than than a lot of um, um, investment management uh, firms, I, I believe, in that one of the things I find sort of interesting about our business is that one of the, the most essential parts of the process, idea generation, um, most investment firms uh, sort of hand that responsibility to the youngest, least experienced people on the staff. You know, the the, the portfolio manager will put pressure on the junior analyst to come up with ideas. Um, for uh, for for him or her to evaluate, and I think that's really really asking a lot, particularly on the short side, where you have some of these other other barriers like the borrowability or um, and and so on and so forth, the rebate structure. And in our view, we would rather have the partners, um, head of research and the portfolio managers, spend some time on the ideas, and we have analysts who will. Say, I think we ought to be looking at something, but before they do a deep dive, we take a shallow dive and and just make sure that this sort of looks interesting from someone who's got a number of years of experience in doing this and can immediately see something doesn't look right. Um, Valiant is a good example. I mean, it's a name we've been short now for a couple of years. And the first time I looked at this company, before we handed it to our very able pharmaceutical analyst, I immediately at a research meeting said, this this looks like Tyco. I mean, in terms of not the business itself, but the nature, the frantic nature of, of the acquisitions and a CEO who was just hell-bent on buying companies and making them fit no matter what. And and again, this is sort of, that was a gut check kind of reaction, but it's also pattern recognition. You know, having seen these sorts of things before and and, and having a, a person running a company, you know, to please Wall Street, it can really be problematic. And and that's, even on the first pass-through, you would see that with a company like Valiant. And and that's why it was so exciting and why I then insisted that we spend a lot of time on it. It just seemed to, to for a couple of us on, in the, on the team uh, who, who are a little bit older than the others, you know, we saw parallels to some of the great roll-ups of the late 90s and, and, and early 2000s. Um, so I think that was helpful for us. Speaking of Valiant, is that I mean there are a couple of interesting things there. It's a very strange company in terms of it's a you know, the traditional model of pharmaceuticals is you do you spend a lot of research and you fund yourself with equity and you have cash because your earnings going to be lumpy. You have hits and then they die out. And Valiant is is the opposite. They have a ton of debt. They spend nothing on research. Their model is essentially they buy drugs someone else has already invented. They try to raise the price and. And how they get people to overpay is sort of an interesting question they're not getting in, in trouble with. I mean, that's the interesting you – know, there's, a, there's a thing there that's interesting in terms of who the, the personality executive there and another company that you had a lot of uh, interesting experience with, with Enron. And these are both you know, veteran I'm, – I'm not going to say that McKinsey is, is the cause of either one, but it's interesting these are both veteran McKinsey consultants who were beloved by the industries and respected who then came in to run these companies initially were very successful, at least on the surface, became very rich doing it. I mean, is this something that, you know, people should, you know, that sort of automatic like a signal for you, when you, you know, consultant goes into 
the executive role? Is that well? I, I I don't you know I'm always wary of accountants who become CEOs too. That that's always that's always a bad sign for me. But uh, I don't know about that. But I I do know when I see a mindset and when you see the mindset that the the company is a black box. And Valiant said had some of that. Valiant also one of my partners pointed out that Valiant, in terms of a a, a narrative um, or a parallel, um, also resembled WorldCom um, because you had this iconoclastic guy Bernie Ebers. Off, in, he was apart from his other executives, and uh, and it was again this this rapid rapid deal making with sort of questionable numbers and then open feuding with his own executives toward the end of the, of the WorldCom story. So there's a couple of parallels in there. And then I, I saw Tyco. So, you know, Valiant sort of within confines of, 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 of a few different opinions that are shop look like Tyco and Ron or WorldCom. So you're probably on, on, on the right track if you're a short seller, if that, if it reminds you of, of not only one of those, but three of those. Um, and, you know, it, it, it's interesting because, what made the stock attractive to the bulls was its new way of doing business, right? R and D's terrible; it doesn't yield anything. That was the new mantra. So why do it? Why don't you selectively buy drugs that seem to be overlooked, and then run them through this sausage grinder of your reimbursement model, and and derive all this value that that others are just leaving on the table? And, and that was my first problem because it was just this easy to raise prices eight hundred percent. And get reimbursed. Why wouldn't anybody do? Why would the guys who own the drugs not do that? Right. It, that that's the first thing I couldn't get an answer on. And 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 we now sort of know why. There was, in Pearson's own words, from his uh, January 2013 conference call. Well, there are ways. Even if a payer refuses to pay for a script, there are ways to get paid. I'm paraphrasing, but I mean that was a real warning sign for us that that these guys, you know, were going to play somewhat faster, fast and loose. Um, but even the whole idea that, I, you know, then he came up with the idea, well, I'm going to buy drugs. So that's my R&D in effect. So every other drug company that's spending 16% of sales on R&D or 15% of sales on R&D, Valiant's spending 2 or 3%. And the difference is meaningful, number one. Number two of course, Pearson would have you add back any purchased R&D amortization that was running through the income statement because, of course, drugs don't last forever. They do have lives, and he was buying things sometimes with relatively short lives. Uh, and in any case, no drug has more than a 20-year patent. Um, so if you were sort of rational about this, if you bought $40 billion worth of companies, you, know, you might want to set aside $2 billion a year at least to replenish that portfolio over time. And that would be the equivalent of your R&D expense. Well, no, he wanted you to add back any amortization. He called that his pro forma cash earnings per share. And Wall Street dutifully pointed out, oh, that's great, because it's non-cash. And we pointed out, well, yeah, but if take a look at Hewlett Packard or some of these other companies that have had to buy companies to keep their revenue growth just constant, that's the same as maintenance CapEx in the drug business, that's the same as maintenance R&D. So he ha he got Wall Street for a very short period of time to have its cake and eat it too um, by how he had them evaluate the company. And, and now I think people are beginning to see through that, of course. And and so it was, is a lot of these sort of roll-ups roll are, they truly have Wall Street to get Wall Street to believe that two plus two equals five for a short period of time. When in fact, the way they do deals, two plus two is often three and a half. 
the Valiant trade, I'm, I'm curious more on the specific timing, but the, before the company, I mean, now the share price has, has gone down tremendously mm-hmm. from its peak, but there was a period when it was going up by it went up quite a few. Right. It went up 100% on us. Right. I mean, yeah. that's how, how one, one that? third. We started, we started in the low 100s and our first blended set of average prices was somewhere around 130. And, and, and you know, so yeah, it got our attention. It, it doubled first. You, know, you mentioned the way that Valiant was creating sort of an alternative pro forma form of, of accounting metric that was popular with Wall Street. One of the things that, that I've been reading a lot recently and I, it, is this growing gap between the official gap earnings. Gap and gap. And, right. Yeah. The, the gap. Um, and it's it seems like it's mostly coming to treatments of things like one-offs and, and stock-based mm-hmm. compensation, which sounds familiar from, say, 15 years ago. Is, is this something that is that like we should be aware of in general is are there is there are there legitimate reasons why this could be happening i guess is well i mean there's always legitimate reasons why you can break out something on a line item it doesn't always mean it's legitimate to to give the management you know the benefit of the doubt if if common sense belies what they're they're telling you so um it's a problem i mean i teach a course on the history of financial market fraud and it, it usually you know trying to figure it out when companies are playing games with their numbers as as many do you know, take some digging and some figuring out. What's so amazing about the, the past five or six years is they lay it all out for you. Um, and then they just tell you, disregard it. So so whether it's stock-based compensation, which of course is, is compensation, um, what, my favorite is, so is the annual restructuring charge. I mean, there are companies now that are being, you know, charging off charges every single year for 9, 10, 11, 12 years, uh, and sometimes every quarter. And Wall Street dutifully takes that out, and to which I keep pointing out, I mean, you know, if it's sort of happening five years in a row. It seems like it's recurring to me. Um, but but Wall Street, you know, gives them the benefit of the doubt for for the fact that they break it out on a line item. And, and this has been going on for a while now, and the problem with it, Matt, is that now the, the disparity between the so-called operating EPS and the gap number I think it's getting close to $30 a share for the S&P. I think the trailing 12 months now are somewhere in the high 80s. And I think the operating number is somewhere in the 115, 116. So, I mean, this is this is now, you know, when people say, well, the market's not so expensive, I'm always raising my hand. We'll say, depend on what? You know, on the $88, it's, it's, it's certainly is expensive. Um, but we're going to disregard that bad stuff. And then, of course, I love the people that say, well, yeah, but of course, that's energy. You got to take you know, energy's down. I say, well, what about when energy goes back up? Are we going to take it out then? <laughs> but again, Wall Street is always a, half, a glass half full kind of place. So, But in, in this case, it's been interesting to us is that just, just how obvious some of these things are that they want you to disregard. Valiant was a master at that. I mean, this pro forma cash EPS, which, by the way, was just multiples of its real cash flow. Um, it's just just one for the ages. This this sort of gets to another topic that you've raised in the past, which is the difference between a rules based and a principles based accounting system. Yeah. And I mean, we in the U.S. have a have a rules based system, and the downside that you've articulated in the past is if you have the rules, then people are going to try to optimize around it. You can have you can pay a lot of money to find good accountants and lawyers yeah. and bankers. Yep. I mean, the, the the counterpoint, I guess, would be how. You know, you have a standards-based system that you can actually enforce the standards properly. I'm curious if you kind of 
you know, elaborate more your thinking on this. Have people with good standards, right? <laughs> you know, which in, which in the financial world is 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 a constant question. You know, my friend Bethany McLean has has a has a term which which I've actually turned into one of the models in my my fraud class, and and she calls calls it legal fraud, and I think it's just a, as good a definition as, as as any. And she basically points out that companies can actually completely comply with all the rules and regulations to accounting and, and corporate governance and what have you, and yet still there's an intent to deceive. Enron was the good example, and, and where, where really they complied with all the accounting aspects of it. Enron wasn't, was the Enron executives were not prosecuted for accounting fraud, they prosecuted for lying to investors. And yet, I don't think anybody would doubt that there was an intent to deceive. And and this is the real problem when you do have the rules-based system because by almost definition, you're going to do deals to comply with the rules. That doesn't mean that they reflect the economics uh, of the transaction accurately. And so you have to apply certain amounts of common sense to this. You also have to understand that the system is easily gamed. And I think that's where most investors really have a hard time because it's very difficult in human nature to sit across the table from someone and, you know, realize that they're lying to you or they're deceiving you. Um, and often they are. And that's that's how investors keep getting getting uh, fooled over and over in these certain situations. How do you see a, a if we were to have a principles-based standards-based accounting system, and how would that look? And what, what would be kind of some of the big differences between what we have now? Well, I mean, you already have lots of judgment calls in accounting. I mean, GAP, GAP has lots of areas where, where, where judgment has to be used on things like depreciable lives and, and, and other things and, and write-downs of goodwill. Um, but I, I think you, you, you would have to really, really tighten up the audit committee functions. Um, I, I think there's lots of things you would need to do structurally to governance, not just necessarily in the accounting, the, the way you're setting up the accounting standard system and the people that do it, but in oversight, um, not only of the accountants, but of, of the audit function separately. And given all the other g corporate governance issues we have, I just don't see that happening anytime soon. Uh, I think it's a pipe dream. Related to that, one of the things you've said in the past is every company that's ended up going down for fraud had its accounts certified by one of the, the big four. Yeah, usually. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, is this, this sounds like a pretty big indictment of the profession. What is that? Is that an accurate way of well, interpreting the statement? One of the, I mean, one of the questions I always ask my class in the, in the first or second lecture is I always sort of you know, give them a pop question, you know, who prepares a company's financial statements? And an awful lot of smart business school students, you know, will blurt out the auditors. Of course, that's false. Management prepares the financial statements. So the, 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 the point at which the auditors start their process is not produced by them. It's produced by the corporate management team, and the auditors are reviewing it. And often, unless they know where to look or something is just glaringly obvious, you know, they, can, they can sign off on things they shouldn't sign off of all the time. In addition, when they do raise certain issues, management often has very, very cogent, plausible answers to explain why some, some account looks off. And, and, and it's tough. I mean, these auditors do want to do a good job, but they also want to stay employed. They want to keep their business. And so they, they, they have to serve a lot of masters, and I think that's, that's difficult. And uh, 
I don't think it's, it's I don't think it's going to change anytime soon. So we do joke, you know, when when someone says, "Well, who are their auditors?" I always say, "Who cares?" You know, it just really doesn't matter. Right. It seems like it's interesting that there. I mean, with the notable exception of Arthur Anderson, there haven't really been kind of major consequences for audit firms signing off on companies that turned out to be doing something. They well, everybody remembers Arthur Anderson, and, you know, and 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 going after the firm itself, and and uh, and and putting the firm out of business, and then it was, of course, reversed on appeal. And the firm was already out of business, but let's just get back to to a broader point of of the whole criminal justice system when it comes to finance. You know, we have this bizarre idea that we just can't hold individuals responsible for their actions. We have to look at the corporation, so we have to look at Arthur Anderson, not the Arthur Anderson partners that were signing off on this, and we have to look at the banks as a whole, and you know, not the guys who were running the banks or who were doing the deals, um, and and. So you get this this asymmetry where we, we just decide, well, then we're just going to keep fining them, but we're never going to send anyone to jail for, for crossing the line in any kind of financial crime. And I, I think that's that's not a good situation. It would be better, in other words, if more individuals were directly prosecuted. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think one of the things the Bush administration did well, and I don't, you know, generally speaking, I don't think they did a lot well. But the, one of the things they did well was they turned their back on their on, on their friends at Enron and others when the various different accounting scandals in in one and 02 and 03 hit, and they went after them. They they went out. They they formed task forces and and they basically said, uh, you know, this is wrong and and we're going to go after it, just as Bush's father did in the savings and loan situation. That, that, that people do, there are externalities and people do distrust the markets and do distrust uh, free market capitalism when you just let people run roughshod over the rules and enrich themselves at everybody else's expense. And we're still fighting that. I think we're still fighting it not only financially but politically in this country. It's just this feeling that, that, that people got away with murder in, in 08 and 09. And, and whether it's accurate or not, it was never really tested. I mean, with the exception of some small prosecutions, I mean, the really the view of, of the Obama administration was to to tread lightly and worry about the economic instances. In fact, the Justice Department in, uh, admitted that and, and as to whether or not to, to bring cases. And I don't know that that was ever, you know, one of the Justice Department's bedrock principles is to to factor in the economic impact on markets by their prosecutions. They were supposed to seek justice. Right. It's interesting bringing it back to what you were talking about with the intent to deceive and the question of, of legal fraud because even if – I mean I, I freely confess not being a legal expert, but there have been some very well-done econometric studies of what was going on with the mortgages put in the various subprime securities yeah. and – systematic they call misrepresentation of what was in them which you know someone was clearly you know you don't have those kinds of systematic you know errors right. if you will occur unless someone was and, was being and let me be this. clear I, I, this is not this is not uh, you know a screed about about going after rich bankers there was fraud going on by the people taking the mortgages out right i mean the the the, the so-called liar loans and no doubt I mean, people were lying left right and center about their incomes and lack thereof and I think to be consistent, you know, I think there should have been prosecutions, you know, throughout that system. There was there was the mortgage brokers who looked the other way. 
you know, all the way up through the risk managers to the, the people putting the security negotiations together. I mean, there's a very, very popular movie out, which kind of walked you through how this all happened. My friend David Faber wrote a great book. Uh, it's in my class. Uh, you know, and the, the roof came tumbling down or crashing down where he took a, a single mortgage and he walked you through how it got from California to Narvik, Norway. It was fabulous. And, and just all the stuff that happened to that mortgage. And, and once you sort of looked at it on a granular basis that way, you, you understood that it was throughout the entire system, the securitization system, the hot potato just kept moving. And everybody sort of along the way looked the other way or, or, or outright told, told fabrications. And so if we had a, a serious criminal investigations, I would have pushed for it to go down the chain as well as up the chain. I think that's important. Speaking of the mortgage either fraud or mis-selling or, or what have you, uh, you identified that there were excesses in the housing market in you know oh five and oh six and were betting against home builders and banks and so forth. Were you ever thinking that you might want to engage in some of the CDS trades that others did in terms of betting on the mortgages, the bonds directly? We thought about it, and and my fear was I was worried that we wouldn't get paid, um, and 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 that really was what what kept us. And kept us in sort of the listed stocks, and, and we did just fine there. But um, I, I was always, you know, I was shown some of those trades, and I always said, well, what if the worst occurs? Because if if what I'm seeing in the level two and level three securities on these balance sheets comes to pass in what what you hope to to achieve by being short some of these things, well, the system goes down, and I was short AIG. And and covered way too early, but I saw what their role was in this. And I mean, I think if the federal government had not stepped in to make sure the AIG could cover its obligations, um, the system probably would have imploded. And and that was the bet everybody was making, because if AIG couldn't meet those margin calls or whatever, an awful lot of people would have been that that were right about the mortgage market would have not gotten paid. And I think that's kind of, you know, that's with hindsight, of course. Mm-hmm. So to me, it always, I, I went through 87 and I went through the Drexel insolvency in 1990. And I know what the fear of not getting paid is in, in, through the clearing. Um, and I was actually far more terrified. I've, I've always said in the three days in third week of October 87 that I was ever afraid in 08. Um, because in 87, it was the first time this happened and you know, really was concerned the system was going to blow up. Uh, whereas in 08, it sort of happened in slow motion. And I think that uh, that was the bet you were making. And you, you, you had to bet that, that all the trades cleared right and anybody who thought they were insured, if it turned out they weren't and you were relying on them, you were screwed too. And at the end of the day, the government stood behind all that stuff. And, and so therefore, you know, the speculators got paid. Um, I didn't want to make that bet with my client's money. You know, this brings us back to questions earlier about risk management and how you deal with that. I mean, can you give us some sense of how, you know, if you were worried, for example, that uh, a given investment bank wouldn't necessarily make good on the CDS promise with you, would you be willing to, I mean, presumably you would also be very skeptical about trading with them at all in terms of, you know, borrowing well, shares. We, have a rule. we don't short, we don't short any, anybody that we're actually doing business with. So that, that right. entails pretty big conflicts. So, but I mean, presumably that would also affect, you know, in terms of. We had money with Bear Stearns, for example, when they got in trouble. And so we couldn't be short of anything at Bear Stearns. So, so I mean, that that's just one 
one thing I should point out. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wasn't like you you were concerned about their solvency or and or ability to pay you and and would move money away from any of those. Well, sort well of we moved money into government securities, so we were concerned. Yeah, yeah. So uh, and I didn't want and I didn't incur any margin debt, so that they couldn't you know rehypothecate securities, and which was a big issue that a lot of people don't understand to this day. The role in the crisis on, on on how liquidity came out of the system, even though there were these assets there, um, hedge funds you know moved quickly to reduce their margin balances, and if you weren't borrowing money from them, they couldn't take the securities out of your account and go borrow against them and stick Bear Stearns IOUs in your account. Can you that, maybe walk through that a little more. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 part of the it's part of the history. See, I believe personally, I believe that the run the so called run on Bear Stearns, which a lot of people. Uh, I think started in March of 08. I think it started in February of 08. And I remember that that my head of stock loan went to a meeting that Bear Stearns had with its prime broker clients to sort of put them at ease. And my partner came back and he was, of course, less at ease based on that meeting. And we decided at that point, you know, to securities at Bear Stearns to, as best we could, take our cash balances and get them in the form of government securities. And so having gone, gone through this in Drexel in 1990, I sort of had, I knew what to do. And what a lot of people don't realize is a form of liquidity for anybody with a big prime brokerage book, which Bear Stearns had, was if you have uh, indebtedness, if you've borrowed money from them in that, in that account, they have the right to rehypothecate the collateral, your securities in your account. So say you have... Um, I'm going to. This is a simplified matter, and there's bells and whistles. But for purposes of, of your listeners, say I have one share of IBM, and if I just own the one share of IBM and don't borrow against it, that one share of IBM stays in my account. If I have a margin account, and I buy one share of IBM, and then I use that to borrow another hundred dollars on my IBM. Um, Bear Stearns can take that one share of IBM that's in my account and borrow against it for their own purposes, pledge it as collateral to another bank, and give me a $100 Bear Stearns IOU in my account. Now, I'll still, my, my equity will go up and down based on the price of IBM, but I won't have a share in there. I'll actually have a Bear Stearns IOU. So if the music stops and Bear Stearns files bankruptcy, Suddenly, as opposed to my share of IBM in my account, I'm an unsecured creditor of Bear Stearns. And that's what the hedge fund and and other communities sort of realized belatedly, having not gone through this before. The other other sort of dress rehearsal was LTCM in 98. And they began to shrink their balances to make sure that they weren't incurring margin debt. So, and that was forcing Bear Stearns to return the collateral. And... Thus, that was the run, and and so that's how the run. It, it put it that exacerbated the run. Now there was other assets at Bear Stearns sure. that were being pledged in the mortgage back area, mm-hmm. but in the equity prime broker stuff, that didn't help because that was a source of marginal of liquidity for them, and that was going the other way as well. And so, a lot of hedge funds were getting up to speed very quickly on just how exposed they could be to a, a, a prime broker if they went under, and 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 that was adding to the problem. Can you explain how you, on the short side, are exposed to a prime broker? Because I mean, obviously, the pro- it's 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 both similar and different because it's yeah. not like you own the stock and and they're lending it yeah. out to someone else. How how does that work? 
Yeah. So, so again, when I, when I, in an unmargined situation where I'm not borrowing any money, uh, I'll put up collateral. So a, a simplified example, again, you give me $100 to short IBM. Um, I will buy $100 T-bill and that will be the asset to begin with in the account. And there will be a hundred dollars there for of equity. I will then take that $100 T-bill and, and use it as collateral one-to-one to borrow $100 worth of IBM and sell it short. So now on my little imaginary balance sheet, I have two assets. I have a $100 treasury bill and I have $100 of cash from the sale of the IBM. I now have a liability, which is called short market value. And that's my mark to market on my short IBM position that I owe the broker. And then I also still have a hundred dollars in equity because that hasn't moved yet. So the dynamics are a little different because my, my assets are my treasury bills and the excess cash. What I don't want is to have that excess cash become a Bear Stearns IOU. So I want to move to have all of my assets and government securities in my clients' names. And again, I'm simplifying against that short market liability. Last thing you want to do is have what you think is a is a cash asset become a a unsecured creditor position of a, of an IOU of a broker. And so again, you you make all the efforts you can to safeguard the asset side of your balance sheet if you're a short seller. Um, liabilities are, are in the marketplace. And that's a simplified example, but it gets to the point. Uh, it, it It's actually much worse if you're a traditional long guy and you're margined. That's actually when you can find yourself far more exposed to a prime broker than you otherwise would think. Just to go back to that example to illustrate, I think, sorry. Just to get in the back office here. I think you're going to lose all your listeners. I, I don't know. I think, well, maybe this is just me, but this is something that most people don't I think get a chance to hear from when they, you know, get to talk to investors or learn about, uh, you know, how short selling works. So uh, hopefully, uh, at least some will be interested at this point in the the interview. And all the prime broker guys are going to be screaming at me when this runs. Why did you tell them all this? In the example you gave, after you've sold the stock short that you borrowed, mm-hmm. you have the hundred dollar stock liability, and you have the hundred dollars you put up, and then hundred dollars of cash. Which means if the your, stock your assets are cash, right. Right, but some of which you had to start with. Some, yes, yeah. were the stock to appreciate, right? Then your equity you goes have down. right. Your equity goes down, and there's what? There's some relationship between once the stock hits two hundred, then you have problems, or how? Do, yeah, well, you, you, you'll get a margin call before that. I mean, the, yeah. the, the, the rules are you know whatever it is thirty forty percent. You'll you'll be asked to put up more cash in the asset side of that balance sheet to shore up your equity. Um, but yeah, you're uh, unlike most investors, it's a little counterintuitive. Most investors, if they own an asset, they're they're used to the asset value going up and down every night, right? And that's my that's my P and L and my equity. Right. For a short seller, you're you have a liability that goes up and down depending on the price. You want the liability to go down, and 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 your assets are fixed, uh, in effect. And so, actually, people always ask, "Well, short selling is expensive." And I point out, and actually, in a, in a reasonably rate higher rate environment, short selling throws off tons of cash because you're earning interest on your T-bill, and then typically you split the interest 80-20 with the prime broker on the segregated sale proceeds. So when, when interest rates were 6%, my portfolio was earning about 10 or 11 
on the asset side, minus any dividends I owed on the short. So short selling threw out an awful lot of cash um, when rates go up. Short sellers are the biggest proponents of higher interest rates on the street. So that that's the thing. But people have a hard time understanding that for a short position, your liability goes up and down every night, not your asset. I want to switch gears a bit. I, I looked for it. I, I couldn't find, and please correct me if this is not right, but as far as I can tell, that there were not big bets, at least public bets, that you made regarding the euro crisis, mm-hmm. which is interesting to me because it seems like there are elements of that that really fit your playbook in terms of the leveraged credit bubble, yep. um, unproductive assets, housing booms in, in certain places. Yep. Can you kind of walk through how? Well, we were in '08 and '09. I mean, it, it, it's it's '07 and '08. I should say. I mean, we were we were short things like Northern Rock and 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 the Irish banks, things like that. But I was a little compromised because uh, I was um, a small a part of a small number of pro bono groups who were advising uh, people that were Greek Americans that were advising the Papandreou administration in Greece in 2010 and 11. And and I made a pledge: a I wouldn't be short any Greek securities, and then I really felt that, you know, that kind of restricted me, you know, elsewhere. Um, and so so there was that. Um, and, and and number two, you were, if you recall, almost immediately the Europeans went into a freeze the short selling regime, which we warned them um, was going to be a mistake, and, he, and here's why. In 08, when they did that in the U.S. market, I pointed out to the SEC that you're going to have a big problem because when you restrict the ability to sell short junior securities in a capital structure, people who otherwise would be willing to stay with more senior instruments thinking they can hedge them will not take that risk and will simply not roll more senior securities. And so when you begin short-selling bans and restrictions on CDS and that sort of, sorts of things, you know, there's only you can only have CDS on something you own. Well, if that's the case, just sell the damn bond. CDS was designed to hedge, in, in some part, non-marketable risks. So if, if I had, say, say I had a commitment from Bear Stearns Realty to finance a project and the credit markets are tightening and I'm ready to put my high-rise up in 08 and suddenly Bear Stearns is on the ropes, the only way I can hedge that promise, and that's an asset to me, by the way, is either shorting the stock or in the CDS market. And that's exactly why I was designed. Um, I keep pointing out to people that during the crisis, the biggest short sellers of equity, financial equities and purchasers of financial CDS were other financial institutions. It wasn't people like me. They were all hedging off their counterparty risks. Um, see Goldman and AIG. And so... Once you begin to fiddle with that, then the, reverber, the the unintended consequence of that is you begin to tighten up the liquidity in the credit markets and the money markets in the capital structures of these institutions because then nobody's going to take any risks. And I'm just not going to roll the commercial paper. What's in it for me? If I can't hedge this somehow, if I need to, um, I, there's no upside for me holding you know, a par piece of paper from a questionable lender. And that's exactly what happened. It made the credit crisis worse. So we had the real-time experience of that. And, and uh, um, Chairman Cox, I think, later came out and said it was a big mistake. It made things worse, not better. And the Europeans went right down the same road. And we were asked about it. And we said, don't do it. Um, it's going to make your situation turn into a banking crisis. 
that's exactly what it did. And so you know, people think that, that, that well, we're going to stop short selling because it's bad and lower prices are bad and not understanding that, no, it's a hedging vehicle by and large. And that if you don't let people hedge out in junior securities, your senior securities are going to be at risk. Um, and they keep finding that out the hard way um, over and over and over again. What was the advice that you gave to Papandreou when you were there? He obviously didn't take it. <laughs> now, there were a group of us. It was, it was a small handful of us, uh, Greek Americans, and we weren't paid. Um, Lazard was, was their, their advisor. And I, the majority of us actually felt in 2010 <laughs> When when this, these disclosures were first made and it became apparent just how bad the budget crisis was, I, I personally felt they should not they should have left the euro then, um, because they waited five years for last year's crisis and it's only gotten much much worse. Um, the deaths are have increased and they're no better off than they were then. Um, I I had hoped they would take their medicine much earlier on in the process. They should have never been in the EU, quite frankly, and. I think getting out in 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 2010 would have been far far more preferable, but politically it wasn't going to happen, and I, I th that became pretty apparent. And and when the Samaras government came in, um, you know, they made that clear as well, and we were thanked. Um, uh, but it's just a shame what's happened because, you know, in effect, Greece and 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 to a lesser extent Portugal and some of the others, you know, have been made examples of, and I keep pointing out, look, you know, Italy, Italy, Spain, and France are just one real bad recession away from where Greece was. And so this is a political issue. It's not a financial issue. And the whole idea of, of having this trade union and, uh, and a monetary union without any kind of fiscal union and where you had this mishmash, at least until recently, of banking regs was just folly. You know, Margaret Thatcher had it right. Changing gears a bit, what made you decide to go into teaching on the side? <laughs> um, it, it's, uh, I, I've been blessed with the opportunity of teaching um, at my alma mater's business school for the last handful of years. And it, it's, it's, it's one of the best things I've done. I mean, it's, it's, it's just a few weeks out of the year. But I, I think it, it, it's been a lot of fun. And uh, I've met a lot of great people. It's a history of financial market fraud is the class. And uh, when Rick Levin uh, brought up the subject of possibly doing something um, and I told him what my idea was, uh, he, he said, well, you know, it, it's how to detect it, right? Not how to commit, <laughs> commit it. Rick uh, uh, really was the person behind that. And uh, I think that, that business school students are, are taught to correctly so to emulate success and, and, um, uh, and, and use the paradigms in cases, but the problem is, is that as we know, uh, almost all of them, uh, even if they're not short sellers, are going to be touched by corporate fraud at some point in their life, and you don't want it to devastate, you know, your portfolio or your career or your reputation. And there are, you know, fairly rigorous, systematic models out there that um, have sort of stood the test of time, as well as some newer ones, on, on just uh, how some of the great corporate frauds fit over and over again some of the same patterns uh, going back to the 16, 1680s, 1690s. And so it, 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 it's sort of a fun class to teach because, you know, we're, we're talking about a lot of the rogues and, and financial scallywags of the last 500 years, 400 years. And uh, 
it's a lot more fun to uh, to teach about Ivar Kruger and John Law and uh, and the Enron guys than uh, doing just another marketing model. That's no knock on my marketing professors, but you know, your your first selling career has been long, but it doesn't go back to the the time of John Law. I mean, where how did you? Uh, John initially... Law was great. He's awesome. He, he's one of my he's one of the, and one of the most polarizing figures, by the way, in the history of finance because. You know, there's a revisionist history that that what he did was what he brought forth was you know basically the first comprehensive uh, fiat currency system in in modern times, and so you know he killed a guy and you know uh, 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 played stock market manipulation and sent sent retarded people to their deaths in the swamps of Louisiana. These were just sort of small things to pay for for the modern fiat currency system that we now all bow down to. I just think he's a fabulous, fantastic character. Um, but no, he was a little before my time, correct? Right. So I guess my, yeah, my question is, I guess, how did you come across this history originally? It's not, I mean, obviously I can see it being interesting for someone given, given your career path, but not something that necessarily would have come across in your you know, work. It, it's, it's not a course on booms and busts, but we do point out that the fraud cycle tends to follow the financial cycle, typically with a lag. Um, so we, for example, we don't talk about tulip bulbs in Amsterdam in the 17th century, but but the Mississippi scheme and the South Sea bubble, which ha- occurred within one year of each other in Paris and London in, in 1719-1720, were indeed frauds. I mean, they were they were based on 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 absolutely uh, giant lies. Um, in the case of uh, of John Law, it was, and both were basically uh, equity for debt schemes. Um, the French government was hopelessly in debt, and in order to get out of it, John Law convinced the debt holders to take shares in the Mississippi Company, the Company d'Orient, whose basic charter was to to develop Louisiana and the the Louisiana Territory. And he painted this picture of of you know, rivers of gold and fields of diamonds and friendly Indians, and and just just this this paradise. And he developed a, a port on the Mississippi, called it after his benefactor, the Duke de Orleans. He named it New Orleans. And they sent the, the the first group of settlers. They paraded them through Paris in this sort of gaudy display of, of, of picks and gold picks and shovels. And, you know, it was, it was all just a giant, you know, stock promotion. And it didn't start really falling apart, among other things, when the first reports came out after a much lag of people dying and you know alligators in the swamp and very unfriendly Indians and no rivers of gold and fields of diamonds, but uh, but really the malarial swamps of of, of Louisiana and and so um, you know it, it it he was he was really quite something. I mean, as someone pointed out, at his peak he was the head of the central bank. He was the uh, he was the treasury uh, minister. And he was nominally the CEO of, of the largest company, you know, with operations everywhere. So he was sort of the equivalent of our Fed chief, treasury chair, and CEO of the largest Fortune 500 companies all in one man. I mean, it's just unbelievable the financial power this one individual had in uh, in this country at that moment. And uh, so he's a great guy to, great guy to sort of study. You're talking about the financial cycle and the, and the fraud cycle and earlier about how you spot companies that are problems with, with fads and technological obsolescence. It seems like there's now with the private markets, there are a lot of companies that potentially, you know, if, if you could short them that 
you might like to. I mean, have you have you you know speculating idly if the, you know if you could pick any one of these, like what would you? Well, I mean, you it, shorting of? public companies is tough enough, but to go speculate on companies I can't even short, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna fall for that one, Matt. I mean, I mean, there's clearly a couple of obvious ones that, that I'm sort of scratching my head about, as other people are, and and some business models I I've yet to sort of be convinced about. But without really looking at the financials and just based on press hearsay, it's it's tough to know. As I say, it's tough enough when you actually have financial statements to to, to figure this out. But just based on you know on what people say about certain things, it's it's tough. I, I so I'll I'll pass on that one. Fair enough. What in in your career do you think has been the biggest mistake that you've made? Yeah, the, the the one we always cite, which was just, it was it was a twofold mistake, um, it, it, and that was uh, the the great America Online. So we got killed being too early. I know early on in this interview you talked about being early, and this was the, the great example. Um, now we also did a decent job though of limiting our losses because of the risk parameters. So we kept the position; it was never more than one percent at any given time. So although it went from basically eight to eighty on us. You know, it didn't put us out of business. You know, it just made numbers look bad for a couple of years. And it was an accounting story. I mean, it was it was basically uh, our view on, on America Online in the late 90s was that they were deferring and capitalizing the cost of sending those CDs out everywhere, the, the ubiquitous uh, AOL disks. But the way they were showing their churn was deceptive in our view. And if you analyzed it properly and adjusted for the free trials and all the rest of this stuff, that you could come to the conclusion that actually toward the end of the 90s, the marginal customer was not going to be profitable. And this is when they were sort of at about 24 million subscribers or 22 million subscribers. And uh, it didn't matter. I mean, it was wrong place, wrong time, wrong group. It was the internet. And it was, you know, massively popular stock. And so we finally... Exhaustion set in, and in, in late '98, early '99, I forget, and we we covered our last year, and and you know, sort of walked away. Um, and a year later, Time Warner buys them, or they, they merge in this 160 billion dollar combination. And the second mistake we made was we didn't short Time Warner, which would have been the way to do it because the story had already begun to play out. The growth had slowed. In fact, Time Warner, I think bought them when they were 26 million subscribers and they peaked out at 27 million a year later. I mean, it was, they, they bought them right at the top. And of course, realized that the business was uneconomic and people were beginning to ultimately transfer to the regular internet. AOL was the training wheels. And I've done in the past where I've seen when we've had companies bought out by other companies, we have shorted the the buyer. Like, boy, really? Are you kidding me? This is great. And we didn't do it time warner. And Time Warner ended up going down 80%, 84%, something like that. And it, 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 we compounded our error and our misjudgment and our timing on the way up by missing the easier short on the way. And nobody was going to buy Time Warner at that point, right? So we didn't have any takeover risk. So it was doubly, you know, just a double error. So both up and down, I, I, that's easily probably number one in our book. I think that's it. Thank you very much for coming. Oh, yeah. Well, great. This was fun. Thank you very much for having me.
And that is the end of this week's episode. Definitely check back in next week for our conversation with Ann Case. Email us at alphachat at ft.com or give us a call at 917-551-5012. That is plus one country code because we are in the U.S. for our overseas listeners. Rate the show and leave us a review on iTunes. It really does help people find out about us. And then finally, you can get show notes at ft.com forward slash alpha chat. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The latest episode of The Next Five podcast is all about AI and the business travel sector. I speak to Tim LaBelle, head of product for SAP Concur Spend Solutions. We'll have so much data that our travel will be safer. Shelley Fletcher-Brian, VP of Advito. AI can certainly contribute to more eco-friendly travel practices. And author and public speaker, Theo Lau. AI can help us predict when it will be a peak travel, more delays, cancelled flights. Listen to the full episode of The Next Five wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy.